1: Today we're going to talk about Texas Democrats fleeing the state to block Republicans from passing their voter suppression bill, and what came of a highly anticipated meeting with Joe Manchin. I interview one of the Texas Democrats himself, James Tellerico, about his viral interview with a Fox News host, his response to Ted Cruz's criticism, and the likelihood of he and his colleagues getting arrested if they return home. And finally, I sit down with epidemiologist Dr. Abdul El-Sayed to talk about COVID and whether Republicans are ultimately just hurting themselves by opposing the vaccine. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So yet again, Texas Democrats have been forced to break quorum, this time leaving the state during a special legislative session called by Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who is hellbent on passing his party's voter suppression bill. The Texas delegation went to Washington, D.C. to put pressure on national Democrats to pass the For the People Act, which would protect against some of the worst effects of the bill in Texas. Meanwhile, Texas Republicans have ordered a call of the House, which authorizes Department of Public Safety troopers in the state to arrest members of the state house who break quorum. And Governor Greg Abbott has even said outright that they will be arrested. But so long as they're in D.C., they're safe since Texas's troopers don't have jurisdiction outside of the state. Now, something else that Governor Abbott did was veto the legislature's funding as a way to put pressure on these Democrats to, you know, relent and let the bill pass. That's right, the party of small government in the state of small government, just saw one branch's executive deprive the more than 2,000 employees of another branch their salaries and health insurance, all because he didn't get to pass his voter suppression bill that would rig the rules of the game for his own party. And this isn't really even going to impact the lawmakers. They make $600 a month. That's seven grand a year. The people who this is going to impact are their staffs. Are, are the custodians, cafeteria workers, parking attendants, landscapers, and every other employee who relies on this funding to survive. That's who Abbott is using as a bargaining chip until he gets what he wants. But what's most shameless about this whole process is that Republicans are rallying behind what they're branding an election integrity bill, even though labeling it an integrity bill suggests that there's some lack of integrity in the process right now, that, that there was some type of uh, widespread nefarious behavior in the process, which there wasn't. And that's not just me saying there wasn't. The issue was already litigated in more than 60 court cases, including in front of a number of judges who Trump himself appointed and at no point in even a single case were they able to prove fraud. Trump's own DOJ and DHS said there was no fraud. Republican secretaries of state said there was no fraud. Recounts and audits confirmed there was no fraud. So to suggest that in an election where the results were correctly counted, that somehow on some planet, the thing was illegitimate is to pretend that none of those things happened. And that's what this is. It's pretending. It is a coordinated effort by most Republicans to repeat and promote the big lie that the election was stolen, even in the absence of a modicum of evidence, because so long as they can manipulate their supporters into believing there was fraud, they can continue using that as a pretext to pass laws that will make it more difficult for people to vote who typically cast ballots for Democrats. They are lying about an election being rigged as a justification to then rig the next election for themselves. And beyond that, just look at the bill. Banning 24 hour voting is not election integrity. Ending drive through voting is not election integrity. Imposing new restrictions and paperwork requirements on individuals who help disabled voters and non English speakers cast a ballot, and making it harder for election officials to remove partisan poll watchers who harass and intimidate voters. And imposing criminal penalties on election officials and volunteers who commit even a minor violation of the state's election law does nothing to preserve the integrity of voting. None of those provisions should be passed by any legislature even mildly committed to voting rights. The point here is making it more difficult to vote. But of course, Republicans will point to the fact that they've removed provisions that were included in previous versions of the bill, including a provision that would have shut down a number of polling precincts where predominantly black voters live. And another that would have ended early voting on Sunday mornings when black churches sponsor souls to the polls. And they'll point to these as a sign of compromise. But like, it's not a compromise to just take out the single most abhorrent provisions of a bill. Taking out those provisions should be the bare minimum. Like, imagine somebody uh, uh, robbing you and telling you they want your phone and your wallet. And then they're like, OK, look, look, I'll tell you what. Let's compromise. Just give me your wallet. That's not a win for you. That's making something shitty just marginally less shitty. The bill that's been reintroduced in this special session is a marginally less shitty bill that is still wholly unwarranted and unnecessary. Now, the fact that these Texas Democrats are in D.C. is the only thing preventing the Republicans' bill from passing, but it's not a permanent solution. Abbott has the power to call unlimited special legislative sessions. And so while it won't work this time, he can call another one the day after this one ends. And if the Democrats flee the state that time, he can call another one after that meaning that the situation isn't sustainable, but it was never meant to be. The whole point of this exercise is to put pressure on national Democrats who clearly aren't meeting this moment. Because here's the deal. We can screw around with our legislative priorities and win some victories in the short term, but Republicans have their attention trained on consolidating power for years beyond this. Like, they're focused on ensuring that states are so gerrymandered that there's no way the Democrats could win the House, meaning that zero, zero legislation gets passed ever again. And that would be the whole ballgame, which is why every day not spent fighting back against these anti-democratic efforts is a day wasted. And that's not to say that the American Rescue Plan wasn't monumentally important or that the American Jobs Plan or the American Families Plan aren't going to fundamentally change this country because they will. But unless we're okay with this being the Democrats final legislative achievement, then we need to wake the fuck up and recognize that passing an infrastructure bill isn't going to magically win us the House when Republicans have mathematically engineered congressional districts in such a way that Democrats will have the least representation humanly possible. The Texas Democrats seem to understand this, and yet somehow there are national Democrats who don't. Somehow there are national Democrats who have the power to do something to quite literally save this country from the greatest threat to democracy in our lifetimes, and their priority is some some arcane Senate procedural tool and the non-existent promise of bipartisanship from a party that doesn't want it, from a party whose public statements sound like this.
0: 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration.
1: And yet, despite all of this, according to reporting, these Texas Democrats met with Joe Manchin on Thursday and he shot down the prospect of a carve-out to the filibuster for voting rights legislation, insisting instead that some iteration of a voting rights bill could pass with 60 votes. He suggested that the reason that the For the People Act failed to get 60 votes before was that it was too comprehensive. He said, quote, "They had a bill that's 800 pages long. They've had everything thrown at them, and so he's calling for uh, for more bare bones legislation instead." But why Joe Manchin thinks that Republicans would support anything substantive is beyond me. When they are quite literally the instigators of this anti-democratic legislation around the country, like it's it's like partnering with termites to protect wood. And yet, with that said. Our only option right now is to continue pushing this. That's it. We have a 50-50 Senate and Manchin is number 50. But we won't get there without trying. So good on these Texas Democrats for forcing the issue. If what it takes is an entire delegation of Democrats who left behind uh, their families and homes and jobs to finally force these holdouts to at least pay attention, to at least take a meeting, then so be it. And at a time when the coming months will determine what this country looks like for a decade or more, the importance of what they're doing can't be overstated. But with that said, it's not free to have flown to D.C. It's not free to live in a hotel. It's not free to have to feed an entire delegation of people every day. And at a salary, again, of $600 a month, these Texas Democrats can't do this alone. I started in Act Blue this past week to raise money for the Texas House Democratic Campaign Committee. I'll put a link in the episode notes. So if you recognize just how important what these people are doing, then please help support them. Because right now, this is far and away the most significant fight that we're facing and the people fighting it need our help. Having said that, my guest today is one of those Texas Representatives, James Tallarico. Today, we have a member of the Texas House of Representatives, James Tallarico, who's currently in Washington, D.C., after leaving the state to deprive Republicans of the quorum needed to pass their voter suppression bill. James, thank you for coming back on. Thanks for having me on. You have been uh, you've been busy from MSNBC to Fox. You you you're everywhere. Yeah,
0: you know, it's it's been a whirlwind. Um, Obviously, I prefer to be back home um, uh, and not in Washington, D.C., but uh, the Republicans in our state gave us really no other option but uh, but to leave uh, to defeat that voter suppression bill.
1: Well, so there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, are you and other Texas Democrats at risk of being arrested if you go back to Texas now? And if and when you wait out the special legislative session, does that risk go away?
0: so yes we're at risk for being arrested in fact the governor has promised to arrest us so it's almost a certainty that's what happened that's what would happen if we cross state lines to go back into texas um you know this is the same governor that uh introduced this voter suppression bill in the first place to appease donald trump and his big lie it's the same governor that canceled the entire legislative branch of texas state government by defunding our staffs uh, and the resources we need to operate and it's the same governor who is now Threatening to put legislators in handcuffs. I mean, it's sometimes it's it's hard to believe this is all happening uh, in the United States of America, right? It sounds like something you would have seen in in another country, at another time. Um, and it's a it's a slow moving crisis, so it, it's easy to to kind of be, become desensitized to all of this and to just accept it. Um, but we really can't do that; otherwise, we're at risk of losing this entire democratic project.
1: I know that the intention isn't to leave Texas forever, but. Eventually, Abbott's going to call a special legislative session, which he has the power to do unlimited times, and you won't have the numbers to win that vote. And so the goal here is to get National Democrats to step up and figure out a way to pass the For the People Act. But with that said, are you prepared to leave again if you find yourselves in a similar situation and we haven't quite gotten there yet?
0: You know, I think quorum breaking is always going to be in our toolbox. Um, It always has to be on the table. Obviously, we try to reserve it for the most egregious abuses of power. Um, you and I have talked about the fact that we don't, we don't break quorum all the time. We, we lost a vote on a ban uh, on abortion in the state of Texas last session. We lost a vote on permitless carry of handguns. Uh, we lost votes on, on all types of really important uh, policy topics, but we didn't break quorum. We, we fought the good fight. We lost, we dusted ourselves off and got back to it the next day. The reason, as, as we have talked about, the reason we broke quorum on voting rights is because voting rights is not an issue like every other issue. It is foundational. It is essential. It underpins all those other issues. Without it, we can't have this discussion in the first place. Um, you know, I think my little sister, I have a little sister, her name is Madeline, um, and she's like a right-brained person. Uh, she's very analytical. She's, a, she's an accountant. She's really good with money. And when we were little, she loved to play Monopoly and she was super good at it. And I lost like every time we played and she, I would be in like all his debt because she was really good at Monopoly. And I played because you know I'm, I'm a good big brother and, and I wanted to make her happy. But if she had tried in the middle of a game to change the rules of Monopoly, I would have stopped playing, right? And that's what's happening here. The Republicans are trying to rig the rules of the game in their favor. And that's why we took the extraordinary step of walking out, breaking quorum and disrupting the entire legislative process. Um, if we allow the Republicans to do, do this here, then this entire American experiment will start to unravel.
1: That's perfectly put. And uh, a warning to Madeline out there not to try anything. I'm so glad I got to embarrass her on this podcast.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. I will send her, I'm going to send her the link as soon as it's up.
1: <laughs> um, so look, I, I know that a, a group of Texas Democrats have now met with Joe Manchin. So what can you tell me about that meaning? Because obviously, I mean, you know, that's what this all comes down to.
0: Yeah, the meeting was surprisingly positive and productive. Um, the, the delegation we sent to meet with Manchin, you know, we selected our members very carefully. It was members who um, you know, shared similar politics uh, to Senator Manchin and could talk with him from that same perspective. And so the, they hit it off from, from what we hear. Uh, and, and Senator Manchin is very sympathetic to our cause. And, and he's a former Secretary of State in, in West Virginia, and so he believes in, in voting rights and he wants to pass a voting rights bill, the, the issue is what's included and how expansive and, and, and how, how wide is the scope of this piece of legislation. But I think there was some movement on the fact that we can take steps to prevent something like what's about to pass in Texas from becoming state law. And, and honestly, you know, I, I, this is not an abstraction to us. You know, Our constituents are having their rights undermined as we, as we speak. As you and I speak right now, my constituents are at risk of losing their God-given right at the ballot box and so i i need something to pass that's going to protect them that is my job as a state rep Uh, i have to serve them um and so if we can't get the full loaf this time um, i'm going to settle for whatever i can get to ensure that this bill in texas does not become law
1: well look we already know that mansion supports um some elements of the for the people act he's come out uh with a list of, of provisions that he is supportive of um but the issue even if we do manage to get a pared down version of the For the People Act is obviously the filibuster. So was that included in talks?
0: You know, uh, whether or not, uh, you know, Senator Manchin, um, you know, is able to bring along enough Republicans to avoid the filibuster or whether an exception needs to be made is really, uh, I don't mean to sound flippant, not my concern. You know, I'm not a a senator, I'm not a federal lawmaker. I have one responsibility, that's to represent my constituents in Williamson County, Texas. That's my job. And I have to make sure something passes to prevent their rights from being dismantled by Texas Republicans. And so I'm, and in many ways, I'm agnostic to the process. If Senator Manchin thinks he can find 10 Republicans to pass a voting rights bill, more power to him. Um, if we have to make an exception to the filibuster for voting rights, I think that's warranted. Just, just like what you and I talked about, voting rights is not like every other issue. Um, and so an exception I think um, is, is something that, that is worth considering. But either way, um, we have to get something passed. We have to get something passed now because we in Texas are out of time. Um, we needed action yesterday. Uh, and, and I hope that sense of urgency is what we're bringing to the conversation. You know, I, I get the feeling that a lot of folks nationally and a lot of folks in blue states you know, are treating this uh, as an abstraction. Uh, they're treating this as a theoretical conversation, an intellectual exercise. But for folks like me in Texas, my colleagues in Georgia, this is not theoretical. This is not abstract, this is not intellectual. This is very real, very tangible, very visceral. Um, And so we need action. And the reason we came here, the reason we're doing this is to push the entire nation to act and to act now.
1: Do you expect any type of announcement, any type of, you know, to basically discuss what the fruits of that meeting were? So from
0: from what I've gathered and again, I, you know, I, I hate to try to get involved in Senate politics it's not my expertise and I'm uh, This is my second time to be in Washington DC in my entire life. So I, I'm not an expert on what happens on Capitol Hill. But from what I gathered folks wanted to get past the infrastructure conversation before really getting into the meat of this voting rights discussion, which means that our arrival here was timely. Um, the fact that we are here, uh, you know, as that as the recess nears. Uh, and the fact that uh, the infrastructure bill has starting to come to a close. And so I'm, I'm hoping that senators and leaders in in the House of Representatives will now start in earnest, developing what this framework will look like.
1: Now you had an interview with Fox host Pete Hegseth. Here is a brief clip from that interview
0: you have made a lot of money personally and you've enriched a lot of corporations with advertising by getting on here and spewing lies and conspiracy theories to folks who no, trust about you. My and so what I'm asking you to do is I to see. tell your voters right now that Donald Trump hey, lost the election in 2020. Can can you, can is, can at least you resolve the lie that is, at you resolve
2: the lie that is, Democrats are now what for what I voter asked? ID. It's not you a show, sir, I but at least, did, I, at least you resolve Donald the Trump, idea that Democrats are not for
0: voter ID. in 2020? Real quick. Can you answer the question? Did Donald Trump lose the election in 2020? I think I'm questions I'm not, don't is really this, feel an, is any this obligation is an uncomfortable, to an uncomfortable of you? question for you? No,
1: it's- so clearly not super intent on answering the question whether Trump won the 2020 election. So I want to give you the floor and explain why it's so important that that was the question you asked. And I'll, I'll try really hard not to jump on top of every word you're saying. You know, I figure that'll be a nice a nice change of pace from Pete Hegseth's physical incapability of not hearing his own voice for more than seven seconds at a time. So,
0: well, so I, I'm I'm used to local. Uh, press uh, back in, home in Texas, right? And, and in many ways, local reporters, state reporters are so much better than, than the folks that you see on cable television, uh, especially Fox News primetime, um, because they're more a dialogue than a monologue, right? They, yeah. they yeah. ask you a question, they listen to your answer, and then they ask a follow-up. That obviously is what I didn't get uh, on Fox News. I should have known better. Once I realized that that was the case, I decided to go ahead and ask some questions on my own. The reason I decided to ask about the big lie that the last election was stolen, the big lie that Donald Trump has has spewed since since he lost in 2020, is because it is the heart of this entire problem. The the only reason, Brian, that you and I are talking right now, besides the fact that we're friends, the only reason you and I are talking is because of the big lie. Without that, we would not be here. I wouldn't be in Washington, DC. I'd be back home in Texas. I'd be at my desk at the state Capitol working on early childhood legislation or something that I care about um, to make our state better. I wouldn't be here defending some basic rights to be able to participate in democracy. The entire reason that I'm here is because one man uh, could not accept factual reality. One man was willing to burn down our entire democratic system for his own ego. And until we grapple with that fact, we're not gonna find our way out of this situation. And so I I hope that that conversation on Fox News, which um, was not productive in, in many ways, I hope the silver lining is that it has refocused us uh, on the heart of the matter, which is this big lie that has gotten us into this mess in the first
1: place. Yeah. And I've I've repeated, you know, countless times at this point that basically, you know, once you can get away from that, you'll take away their justification to pass all these restrictive voter suppression bills across the country, because all of it's done under the pretense that the election was stolen. So once once that lie is debunked we can move on and start to you know all the other dominoes will fall so you know i I applaud you for for using your time for good because clearly there wasn't going to be anything uh anything any more productive than that uh coming out of a conversation with pete hexes so did you get any feedback from the fox audience after you went on and if so was
0: was any of it good um so there was a lot of feedback hard to tell what how many audiences uh were responding uh the you know obviously that that exchange went went viral and there were articles written about it. Then I was. Then it was very strange because then I was on other networks talking about my interview on Fox. was yeah. You know, kind of, kind of like through the looking glass. But um, you know, I'm hoping what that what that did for the viewers of Fox is is show um, you know what this network is really all about. It's about profiting off of their anger. Um, Pete Hexeth is an educated man. You know, he he poked fun at the fact that I um, got a degree from Harvard, which I'm I'm very proud of. My, you know, I, I had a, I grew up with a single mom um, who didn't get to go to college. So going to Harvard was a big deal for our family and he, he poked fun at that. And until I realized after the show was over that he got a degree from Princeton, um, <laughs> certainly yeah. um and, uh, and so he's an educated man, he, he knows that Donald Trump's lie is not, not based in, in empirical evidence. Um, the reason he's doing this is for his own personal gain, right? And he's making a lot of money as a Fox News primetime host, and his corporate advertisers are making a lot of money. And so the people who are watching this network, including my own family members back in Texas, are being used um, for someone else's enrichment. Uh, And so I I hope that at least we expose that for some viewers. Um, And if we did that, then I think my time was well spent on that network.
1: So after you all went to D.C., uh, you know, to, to move from one shining example of the Republican Party to another, after you all went to D.C., Ted Cruz criticized you guys for getting on a private jet and leaving the state. Do you think Ted Cruz is trying to get ridiculed? Because I can't think of any other reason how he, of all people, could manage to say those words.
0: Sometimes I can't tell if it's Ted Cruz or like an SNL cast member playing (laughs) Ted Cruz. Uh, He he has become a caricature of himself. Um, The complete lack of uh, self-awareness for him to enter into this conversation is stunning. Um, And uh, I I hope that that contrast uh, between my colleagues and I who left the state to to serve our constituents uh, versus Senator Cruz who left the state to abandon his constituents is made very clear to the people of Texas, because that's the difference between our two parties. Um, One is interested in their own personal gain, their own personal ambition, their own personal enrichment. And one is interested in empowering the people of Texas uh, to achieve their fullest God-given potential. And the contrast couldn't be starker. And I hope that we remember in the next election which party fought for Texans and which party fought for themselves.
1: You know, and, and to build on what you just said and, and what people like Ted Cruz said when he called, you know, when he called this a political stunt, I can't imagine that you want to have left your homes and your families and your other jobs, you know, that you need to actually survive, because as far as I know, your uh, your salary is what, six hundred dollars a month? Uh, that's that's before taxes. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's more like
0: four hundred dollars a month
1: <laughs> to leave all of this to go to Washington, D.C., to beg Joe Manchin of all people to do something that he's been adamant about not doing, who would want to have to lobby Joe Manchin to do the thing that he never said he'll do and eliminate the filibuster? Like yep. one hell of a vacation, sign me up. Right. I mean, the amount of personal
0: sacrifice that my colleagues have had to make to be here is is really overwhelming. You know I, we've had colleagues who have left their children. Um, some is you know, young is just a, a few months old. Um, we've had colleagues who have left. Um, elderly parents, we've had colleagues who have left sick and dying loved ones, Um, some of them had to leave their bedsides to be here.
1: Representative uh, Celia Israel was postponed her wedding. That's
0: exactly right. She canceled her wedding. um, And you know, she celebrated her birthday yesterday, here in a conference room in the basement of a hotel. Um, And, uh, and so those obviously those personal sacrifices are nothing compared to the. The sacrifices that brave Americans made long before you and I right at Normandy at Selma to protect the sacred right to vote. Um, The the thing about this, though, is that Joe Manchin doesn't have to sacrifice anything. Uh, He really doesn't. All he has to do is make one exception to one Senate rule to save American democracy. It's not it's not that hard. Uh, It's a pretty light lift And, and I'm a politician, so I understand. You know, what, what it means to take a political risk. And, and this, is not a, this is not a substantial risk. So you have folks here that have come to the nation's capital, politicians, just like Joe Manchin, who have to get elected, who have made personal and political sacrifices to do what's right for our country. All we're asking him is to do the very same.
1: Well said. Uh, so now we're, we're recording this on Friday. As of right now, We've already raised over one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars through an act blue that goes directly to the Texas House Democratic Campaign Committee. So for the almost four thousand people that donated, uh, can you just kind of give an indication of what those funds are being used for? Well, first, I just want to tell you,
0: you know, it's a very emotional thing to have people step up and have your back in a moment like this. Um, This has been a tough. Uh, week for us. Uh, Not only are we sleep deprived, I think I've gotten like a cumulative of 10 hours of sleep this week. Um, You know, not only we run down, not only we're missing our families and our beloved home state of Texas, um, but we're also getting um, harassed and uh, and attacked by the far right every single day. My office has been flooded mostly from folks out of the state of Texas who have been brutal to my team and to me. and that's that's hard on a on a person. You know, we're all, we're all elected officials. But we're also human beings. Um, and this has been a very difficult week. But the the fact that total strangers um, have signed up with this project of yours to to give whatever money they have, hard earned money, I'm sure, to this this effort, it just um, it really does mean a lot um, personally and, and politically and professionally. So I just from the bottom of my heart just want to thank everyone who who donated, and also want to thank you, Brian, because you. You have a lot of different uh, competing priorities, a lot of projects you could support. And the fact that you lent your name, your credibility, your reputation uh, to this effort means a whole lot. And, um, and I, I, all you, know, you and all of your supporters are, are honorary Texans in my book. Um, and I hope when all this is over, you guys come down to Texas and, and get some quality barbecue with us uh, <laughs> and celebrate because uh, you're a part of this fight now um, and, and you're in this with us. Uh, and so for, to answer your question, you know, that money is gonna to go to the HDCC, which is the entity we use um, as members to be able to, to fund different projects. This money will be used to protect our staffs um, because as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, Governor Abbott canceled the entire legislative branch of government in Texas, which means that two, over 2,000 staff members are gonna lose their salaries, their pay, and their health insurance on September 1 of this year um, because of the governor's veto. And these staff members, you know, I, I talk, I, I've been talking about how hard my colleagues have been working. These staff members have been working twice as hard. Um, they're the ones who have orchestrated the, the plane tickets. They're the ones who orchestrate the meals for us to eat, the, the bus ride at the Capitol. They're scheduling the meetings. They're, they're, creating, they're doing the research, right? They're doing the bill analysis. The, these staffers are, are the true superheroes of this effort. And, and we're gonna repay them by taking away their pay and their health insurance that they and their families rely on. But because of your efforts, because of the efforts of your of your uh, audience, we're going to be able to to keep them afloat for a little while longer and and buy us time to to see how our lawsuit against the governor in the Texas Supreme Court works out. Um, And so you have you are you and your audience are single handedly um, keeping afloat an entire generation of staff members who are standing up for democracy as we speak.
1: I'm glad to hear that. And obviously, um, I should note that the fund is still open. so for anybody watching and listening, you can find the act blue in the post description of this podcast, this video, wherever you're wherever you're watching. So uh, with that said, James, thank you so much not only for taking the time to speak with me today, but for what you and your colleagues are doing, you've got an entire, Country behind you, and, and we couldn't be more appreciative of of your work to really get this to the forefront and and put some pressure on national Democrats who, frankly, h- haven't delivered thus far. And so we're we're hoping that uh that what you guys are doing and putting you know your whole lives on hold to make this happen is gonna is gonna have some impact. So thank you.
0: We all y'all support and your friendship are keeping us going, um, and we we thank you from the bottom of our hearts.
1: Thanks again to James Tellerico. Now we've got Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is an epidemiologist, one of the former Democratic gubernatorial candidates in Michigan, and the host of the podcast, America Dissected. Abdul, thanks so much for coming back on.
2: Always a privilege to be with you.
1: Thank you. So we have a lot to dig in here as far as the pandemic's concerned, especially as far as public health goes. But first, I want to look at this from a political perspective. So if right now the vaccine protects against the variants that currently exist, then the people who really are at risk are those who aren't vaccinated, right? And so if the people who are getting sick and hospitalized and dying are virtually all unvaccinated, is this not just self-defeating for Republicans who are you know, the, the primary drivers of the anti-vax movement? Like, how is this not just get sick
2: and die to own the libs? You know, Brian, um, sadly, you are, uh, in your analysis, largely correct on this. 99% of the people who are being hospitalized and dying of COVID-19 right now are people who are unvaccinated. And uh, the way that Republican politicians continue to politicize, continue to, to cast aspersions on these vaccines is opening up their supporters to uh, what is now a preventable illness and the possibility of having to go through hospitalization, possibly even dying to make a point. And the sad truth is that uh, what it has shown us is the, the the sheer pessimism and and cynicism of Republican politicians right now so that they can continue to rile up their base with misinformation even though they know that it is actively putting uh, those very people in harm's way right i
1: mean is there ever going to come a point when when the people who are getting sick are exclusively and unilaterally their own voters that this will i mean i guess we already have an answer considering you know six hundred thousand americans have already died and they're still continuing to do exactly what they did before so
2: i guess i just answered my own question i mean the, the sad reality is is that we keep trying to understand this and dissect it with the petty tools of reason when, uh, in fact, <laughs> yeah. this is, um, th- this is a, 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 a logical outcome of a set of uh, presuppositions about where GOP politics is that defies reason. Um, and the sad reality of it is that it does so almost on purpose. A lot of this was set off during the Trump administration when uh, he was trying to distract from his failure to handle the pandemic by basically saying that the whole thing was a hoax and when people start to believe the utterances of one man over all evidence to the contrary that then opens them up to having to disbelieve any other evidence that comes afterwards and in some respect what the trump administration and trumpism and now the gop that has fallen in line with trumpism uh, has had to do is in effect declare war on any form of objective evidence, whether that was the media or that is science or that is scientists and expertise. Uh, and we're starting to see the consequences of that, whether that's in Tennessee, uh, where the Tennessee Public Health Department is now foregoing any sort of outreach on vaccines for children that are actually not even COVID vaccines. We're talking about the, the, the regular old uh, MMR vaccines and, and, and polio vaccines uh, that we all took when, uh, when, when, when we were children. And uh, we're also seeing it other ways. Uh, the, the the legislature in Michigan, for example, which is uh, heavily Republican because of gerrymandering, uh, is now uh, trying to uh, go after the state public health code, which has been in operation since 1978. Um, and so we're seeing the, the war against reason and empiricism and logic and expertise now starting to transmute beyond the pandemic, which is really quite dangerous. And, you know, this is really the danger
1: of this will he won't he run again in terms of like what Trump is going to do in the future, because now that there's still the prospect of Trump continuing to to run in 2024, all Republicans are concerned about is rehabbing his reputation. So because this pandemic is a blight on his reputation, all you can do is continue to Like you said, pretend that this pandemic doesn't exist, that it's not as bad as as they thought it was, just like in the beginning. I mean, they were pretending when it was on that cruise ship that it wasn't a big deal. They pushed back against testing and contact tracing, against social distancing, against uh, mask use, against every, you know, every single method that we had to protect people every step of the way they politicized or were opposed. And so, you know, this is just uh, more of the same. This is the natural conclusion of that. Just to
2: react to that, you know, the fear that I have is that it's not just Trump anymore once you have committed yourself and your movement to opposing any form of empirical logic, the risk is that you start applying that independent of the person you're trying to elect independent of the consequences of that, 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 that system of reasoning. And um, you're starting to see Trump underlings, right? Turn into mini Trumps. And So, you know, I I agree with you that the danger of his running again forces the party into continuing to obfuscate facts uh, for what seems to portend a good outcome for their uh, chosen leader. But I worry also that even independent of Donald Trump, he has demonstrated a form of politics uh, that uh, will start to transfigure uh, the party at all levels and um, you know that that I think is going to is going to be extremely dangerous, whether or not he runs. Well, now
1: look this this all begs the question: with this virus continuing to spread across the country, if the virus does continue to mutate, is it possible and is it likely that the vaccine could be rendered completely ineffective and that we'd be back at square one?
2: I I certainly hope that it's not likely, but um, you know the, the notion that a virus that has figured out how to uh, evolve. To make itself more resistant to the natural immunity that we get uh, after having had the disease could figure out how to make itself more resistant to uh, to our our vaccine mediated immunity and obviously i'm I'm uh, personifying the virus here, but uh, you know this is a natural process, and the more people who get this virus, the more opportunities there are uh, for this kind of evolution to take hold. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we're, we're playing Russian roulette here. And, um, you know, the sad truth of it is it's not just our country, right? We focus a lot on uh, the the majority, unfortunately, of Americans who are choosing not to get vaccinated right now. But there's uh, billions of people across this world who uh, remain uh, exposed to what is now a preventable disease uh, because of the way that we've allowed major corporations to continue to dominate access. Uh, and decide who gets access uh, to these life-saving vaccines. And so, you know, there are people around the world who would line up for days to get access to a vaccine, but they don't have it because unfortunately of the politics foisted on them by people who are choosing not to get vaccinated in our own country. Yeah. Uh, and so this America firstness is 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 not just, I want to make sure that I get access to the vaccine first, but I want to hold it for myself, even if I choose not to take it, because of course, America first, it is a self-defeating logic and in the end could ultimately like you said there's a possibility that it could render uh our vaccines useless we hope and pray to god uh that that is not the case but um you know the what the what the virus is is showing us day in and day out uh is that it has this capacity to mutate uh and that it has the capacity uh to uh to 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 render our vaccines useless the answer here is to vaccinate as many people as fast as we possibly can it's kind of like uh, putting a blanket on a fire, Brian. If you put a blanket uh on a fire quickly, you can smother the fire uh and rob it of oxygen and the fire goes out. But if you slowly feed a blanket to a fire, it just becomes fuel for that fire. And uh, I worry that because of our system of late stage corporate capitalism, because of the America's first Trump crowd who are choosing not to get vaccinated and trying to hoard the vaccine at the same time, that we are we are slowly feeding these vaccines to the pandemic fire. Uh, And that could really end in disaster for us. Well, you know, we know that people not getting
1: vaccinated correlates almost directly with political affiliation. And that once something becomes part of your political identity, you know, as opposed to a public health decision, there's no convincing someone to change their mind. So is that the case with COVID? Is trying to change minds here basically like trying to get someone to switch their position on abortion, for
2: example? You know, I wrote an essay uh, in my newsletter, The Incision, which I hope folks will check out at incision.substack.com. Um, and I wrote it after spending a late night up with my toddler uh, as we tried to sleep train her into her own bed. And at one point, I got really frustrated with my daughter, and I just, I just yelled, go to sleep. And I realized that this was a, 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 a fundamental, futile exercise, because everything that my daughter was doing to try and stay awake, to try and keep us in the room with her, was motivated by an anxiety driven by fear uh, of something that 's fundamentally unsubstantiated whether it 's a monster under your bed or a fear of the dark. We know that these things aren 't fundamentally uh, more fearful uh, than you know going to sleep in the middle of the day um, but that 's what she 's afraid of, and the anxiety uh, it builds up those fears in her and I think if we're if we 're thoughtful about this it 's a helpful metaphor to understand perhaps the way we need to move forward around anti-vaxxers, around the big lie. I think our response, um, and logically so, is to try and yell, go to sleep, right? Which is to try to say, the election was free and fair, just get your vaccine already. Those things don't work because I think we have to acknowledge that there is some anxiety that uh, unfortunately, um, a a number of uh, actors are playing upon uh, and trying to, to build up but there is an anxiety at the at the edge of that that i think we would be smart to acknowledge and um and try and soothe and so what we i believe have to do is both be able right to to empathize with folks recognizing that yeah there is no reason to believe that the conspiracies around the election or around the vaccine are true and yet there is anxiety about it and yelling at anxiety doesn't make it go away it usually just makes it work worse and so I think that we're gonna have to figure out how to soothe people, how to put the message in uh, the hands of people who are trusted in uh, many of these communities where there are low vaccine rates, um, and at the same time, continue to hold to our facts. Just like with my kid, right? Look, there's nothing under the bed, right? And there's no reason to be afraid, but I, I-, I want you to understand that I'm here for you and I'm want you to. i asking you to go to sleep because I think it'd be better for you, right? Um, and I think that is a different tone and tenor then unfortunately, much of our our politics is waged in.
1: Well, you know, speaking of children now, obviously, with these vaccines becoming more moving toward becoming available
2: for young children, is there any indication that the vaccine isn't safe for children? Uh, no, no indication at all. Um, there, uh, you know, any any evidence about any potential unintended consequences uh, has arisen out of the trials. We saw um, the the two. Uh, the two notes that were put on uh the Johnson and Johnson vaccine um regarding uh both the clotting and now the Guillain-Barré syndrome but when it comes to Pfizer and Moderna um you're talking about uh, uh hundreds of millions of people who have now received vaccine vaccines uh and if there were unintended consequences uh we would know about them um and fortunately uh there are not aside from the well documented you know pain at the side of in- of the uh, of the vaccine and um, and 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 the malaise and, and sometimes fever that one can get after the second one in particular, um, there's no reason to believe that's any different. In children, in fact, there are uh, active trials that are uh, currently underway for children uh, uh, at this point up to the age of two, um, and uh, we hope to 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 have evidence uh, about um, safety and efficacy uh, from those trials. But that's the thing about science: is that um, it's a self-correcting. Uh, uh, system and um if you allow it to lead you uh it'll get you to the right answer and 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 so you know it, it's become somewhat um somewhat cliche to say trust the science um but that's not the same thing as trust the scientists and i invite anybody who is interested in this to go and take a look at the results of the clinical trials they are publicly posted um and folks can see for themselves i have
1: one more question and this is more of a long-term question how long could the virus remain if we don't hit herd immunity? Like, will COVID be as prevalent as the flu? And so, you know, there's just gonna be a
2: constant stream of people getting hooked up to ventilators and dying? The point that you made, the comparison to the flu is, is the apt one. Um, flu has been around now uh, for uh, nearly a century. And so it has become somewhat passe. But every year, tens of thousands of Americans die of the flu. And they often are having to be hooked up to ventilators. Uh, and if they make it out that's great but um but but too many people die of the flu unfortunately uh what's looking like the most likely probability is that covid nineteen is going to be very similar It's going to be something that we need to continuously uh, get boosters for simply because, as we well know, it uh evolves uh, rather quickly um and that it is going to infect people and um and 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 some proportion of them uh may in fact die. Um, there was a world where we could have smothered this. Uh, unfortunately, given the reticence to get vaccinated, uh, given the speed with which this this virus uh, mutates, um, it's looking like this is going to be with us for some time.
1: Yeah, just an unforced error that was completely foisted upon us for political reasons. Um, with that said, Abdul, thank you so much. It's always so interesting to hear from you. Where can
2: my listeners hear more from you? Yeah, I hope folks will check out my podcast at um, at America Dissected. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And then uh, check out uh, my uh, newsletter, The Incision, at incision.substack.com. And then you can always follow me on social media. I'm at Abdul El Sayed, A B D U L E L S A Y E D, uh, on Twitter and Instagram, and that at Abdul for Michigan uh, on Facebook. I hope folks will check it out. And um, we try and keep it uh, interesting, informative, uh, but also. Uh, engaging and fun, um, uh, in terms of the you know the fun of learning. Of course, uh, a lot of the topics that we cover um, are not so fun, but it's important to uh, to have that information and to learn it in a in a safe um, and and thoughtful place where we don't shy away from taking on the political dimensions uh, of of some of these issues that we've been talking about. So, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on the pod with you, Brian. Appreciate the uh, information work that you uh, you do every day, and um, looking forward to joining you again soon.